We're in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 11, where we find ourselves today. 2 Kings chapter 11. Last time we saw that the Lord had made Jehu the king over the northern kingdom, and the Lord used Jehu to bring vengeance against Ahab's family line for all the wickedness that they had brought into the northern kingdom. And we saw Jehu, wipe, he did his job. He wiped out the family line and the relatives of King Ahab. And we saw that he had gotten to a certain point of success in obeying the Lord, but then he stopped. Yeah, so let's look at uh, chapter 10, verse 28, to kind of get this back in our thinking here. It says in uh, 2 Kings 10, verse 28, thus Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel, the false god there. And However, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin, that is, from the golden calves that were at Bethel in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight, and you have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord, God of Israel, with all his heart, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin. So we saw that Jehu had removed a lot of evil that was in the northern kingdom at that time, but he failed at one very important part here. By eliminating the family line of Ahab, it brought Jehu to a very comfortable place in his life. He felt that he would not have to worry you know, about any of Ahab's family trying to come after him, because he had wiped them all out. But because he himself did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, as it says here, who set up the calf idols, he left the nation in a very dangerous place. Uh, Warren Wearsby said it this way, and this is a very important principle. He said, a nation does not become righteous simply by removing evil. It must also establish godliness. Now think about where our nation is right now. You know, let me read that principle again. A nation does not become righteous by removing evil. It must also establish godliness. So I believe the current administration that we've got in our country has tried to remove some of the evil that's plagued our nation. And there even appears to be a return to more religious freedom for Christians. You know, some of the persecution, the heat of that's been backed off a little bit from us. But there's not been a bold stand taken to establish righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ over this nation. So political correctness, unfortunately, has done its damage there. So we'll see from this passage here, we looked at last time, what happens when a nation removes some of the evil going on, but they fail and they fall, they fall way short at establishing godliness there. If you look at verse, chapter 10, verse 32, it says, in those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. So the nation began to deteriorate. And compromise with evil, it causes disastrous results. That's just what it does. So to see what this looks like spiritually, hold your place here. Look at Matthew chapter 12. I know it's a passage you're familiar with, but, but think about this. You've got a place that has they've attempted to remove the evil, and it looks like that should be the solution, right? Just get rid of the evil. But if you don't take the next important step of establishing the righteousness of the Lord, you're in a bad place. Matthew chapter 12, look down to verse 43. <clears throat> when, the, 
When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. So this looks like a good thing. The unclean spirit has been removed. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. So again, it's, it's not good enough just to remove evil. And that goes for a nation as well as for a family. If you don't establish true godliness, then you can expect a couple of things to happen, which we're, we see in the history of Israel from this point on. For one, it's going to start to deteriorate, and then things are going to get drastically worse. And that's just the way things go if you don't put that safety uh, foundation in there of having the, the righteousness of Christ uh, to rule. So let's jump in our passage in 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaz, Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and she destroyed all the royal heirs. Now we're jumping back at this point to the southern kingdom of Judah here. And if you recall, Ahaziah was the king of the southern kingdom. He had gone up to the northern kingdom to join King Joram in a battle, and that's when Jehu had them both killed. We saw that back around chapter 9. So we see here that Athaliah, she's brought into the picture now. She was the mother of King Ahaziah, who's now dead, but she was also the daughter of Queen Jezebel and King Ahab. So she's that kind of person, okay? Now, I think that Jezebel was the most wicked woman probably that ever lived on this earth. And we talked about that when we saw her, her shenanigans she pulled. But there are some who believe that her daughter here, Athaliah, was even worse. I mean, you look at what she did here when it says that she destroyed all the royal heirs. Do you know who that is? It means that she slaughtered all of her own grandchildren because they would have been the royal heirs to the throne. And she did that so that she could rule over the southern kingdom of Judah herself. So that's a very selfish and extremely wicked thing to do. So Athaliah and her mom Jezebel were definitely in the same category of extremely wicked people. And the Lord's going to have to have the final say over who is the worst, you know, over that mother-daughter fiasco. Now, by her uh, trying to kill off all of the heirs of her son here, She's causing some extremely uh, scary and major issues here too. Think about this. Her son, Ahaziah, he was of the family line of King David. Okay, And if every single one of his heirs was killed, then that's going to do two major things. Number one, it would end the future of the royal line of King David. Now, the Lord had promised David that his throne would be established forever. And that's in 2 Samuel 7. We won't take time to look there right now. But the Lord had already given that promise to him. And that's going to be just broken up here if this happens. Now, number two, it would stop the coming of the Messiah. Because the Messiah was supposed to come through the royal line of King David. So if Athaliah was successful in her plan, then God's plan of sending the Messiah to be the Savior of the world would, would fail. And everyone who had ever been born 
is in serious, serious trouble, including us here for all of eternity. But praise God that he was not going to let her plan succeed. No matter how much evil tries to stop God's will from happening, our God will never allow it to succeed. So let's continue our passage to see how God overcame that sinister plan of this evil woman here. In verse 2, it says, But Jehoshaphat, I like that name, Jehoshaphat, so I'll say that a few times. It's just fun to say. So Jehoshaphat, she is the daughter of King Joram. She is the sister of Ahaziah. He was a king, right, who had gotten killed there. This Jehoshaphat, she took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, this is one of the heirs, okay, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered. And they hid him and his nurse in the bedroom from Athaliah so that he was not killed. So this lady by the name of Jehoshaphat, she's going to be a hero in the story here. And the Lord's going to use her to preserve the royal line of King David. So we've got some, it's interesting, we've got some wicked ladies in this story, but we also have a heroine here too. It's interesting how the Lord sets these things up, you know? So there's a strong message to the ladies today. The lady who did God's will is honored here, but the ladies who were against God's will are going to be judged and condemned for all of eternity. So the ladies have a choice, you know, to follow the and submit to the Lord's will or not. And the results of that choice is either going to be rewards or judgment. And of course, the men, we have a choice too, whether to follow the Lord and, and uh, fall on either side of that or to, to uh, reject his will. So Jehoshaphat here, she was a sister to King Ahaz, who had been killed by King Jehu, and she also happened to be married to a very important man in the story. She was married to the high priest, and his name was Jehoiada. He's also to come in the story a little bit later, but he's another person who bravely is going to stand for the Lord. So we'll be able to see him. He's going to be added to the list of heroes in this story, and we'll catch up with that in a few minutes here. Now, something else you notice here, it says the king's sons were being murdered. So the Lord here, he calls it what it was, murder, all right? And by them saying that they hid jo jo uh, Joash and his nurse so that he wasn't killed, this gives us a clue that he was just a baby when all this was going on. He still had a nurse taking care of him. And later on, we'll see a little bit about his age. But it's also going to be interesting to see where they ultimately hide him. Look at verse 3. So he was hidden with her. I mean, they put her in the, put him in the bedroom very quickly as the killing crew was going through. But now you got to move him somewhere where he's going to be safer. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord, that's the temple, for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. So where do you hide such a high-profile target of the state here. Well, you would want to put him in a place where they would never think to look for him, the last place that they would ever think to go. So for Athalia, this wicked lady, she was so wicked, I mean, she even killed her own grandkids. So she, she wanted to rule the land. That was her whole motivation on that one. And since she was actually a worshiper of Baal herself, you know, probably the best place to hide someone for her would be to put them in the temple of the Lord. Uh, even though it's right there in plain sight, every day she's walking probably around this place, uh, the temple probably wasn't a place she ever went into unless she absolutely had to. 
Maybe they had some political dinner and made her show up or something. I don't know. But other than that, she's probably never going to set foot in the place. Perfect hiding for her, huh? So her mother, Queen Jezebel, had introduced the northern kingdom of Israel into the worship of Baal. And Athaliah apparently had brought this evil practice to the southern kingdom as well, or at least she was responsible for, for possibly you know, being a heavy promoter of it because we're going to see as we get further in the passage down the road that they're having to deal with this Baal worship too. Now, somebody said that there are some people that if you wanted to hide a $1,000 bill from them, all you'd have to do was put it inside their Bible and they'd never find it, you know? It could be right under their nose, but it would be safely tucked away in a place that they never looked. And that's kind of sadly funny, you know? Now, they were able to hide Joash in the temple for six years. Now, that may seem like a fairly short time. You think, oh, man, thankfully it wasn't 20 years. It was only six years. But it doesn't seem that short if you're the one that's sweating it out, hoping that you don't get caught being involved in, in helping hide this child, right? And you think about the unbelievable significance of this situation. The royal family line of David, based on the promise of God, it results, it just all comes down into one child. That's the last remainder of the family line of David. And it's amazing that this child here is a secret. He's having to be hid away, and it appears that nobody knows his child is here except those who were involved in the cover-up. So Athaliah, she must have figured she was successful in wiping out the, the, her son's family line because we're not told that she continued to hunt at all. You know, nothing else happened. She probably figured no relatives left. I took care of that. So here you have this secret child who's being hidden. Boy, be a great movie for Hollywood if they wouldn't tamper with stuff, right? It's good stuff here. But think what this must have been like. If you were living during that time, okay, and you happen to be part of the remnant, meaning one of those who, who were still trusting God and a true follower of Yahweh, you wouldn't know that there was a son who had been hidden and preserved. So from all outward appearances, God's plan of bringing in the Messiah through David's royal line had failed. That's what it would look like. And since it had been promised by God to be fulfilled, and now it looked like it was impossible it would even seem like the word of God had failed. Can you imagine having that sinking feeling? But there was another time when it looked like God's plan had failed. Remember how the apostles reacted when Jesus went to the cross. They didn't understand it either, but they concluded that, you know, God's plan didn't work. So let's listen in on their conversation a minute. Take a look at Luke chapter 22. This is such a blessing. The Lord let us in on some of these things and we get to hear what was going through their mind. And I mean, we look back and, and say, come on, guys. But if we'd have been there, would we have done any different, you know? Luke chapter 24, <clears throat> you look down to verse 13. So this is after Jesus went to the cross and he's been raised from the dead, but he hasn't ascended to heaven yet. So Luke chapter 24, verse 13, 13 now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So here's the risen Savior now walking with them. They didn't know it. It says their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. 
And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have you not known the things which happened there these days? And he said to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. And notice this, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. That's why they're sad. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went in the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. <laughs> then he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. And then the Lord began to teach them, okay? So their thoughts were, we were hoping that he was the redeemer, you know? And they're just thinking, oh, but it didn't work. You know, but Jesus rebukes them and he says that they are slow to believe. So these truths from the word of God, they should encourage us, you know, to never give up on God's plan because no matter how impossible things look, God's plan is never going to fail. And we pray, Lord, help us, those of us who are slow to believe, you know. But the very encouraging thing is that even Jesus, after he rebuked those apostles, he didn't give up on them. He continued to teach them, and later on, he filled them with his Holy Spirit, and he used them to start the church. So even if we are among those who are slow to believe, the Lord can still use us. Wow, we, we just praise the Lord. And somebody was talking about this, and they said that, you know, the people back in Joash's day, for six years, it looked like the Word of God had failed. But all they had to do was write it out for those six years. I thought that was a good statement, you know. So the exhortation for us is to never give up on God's Word, no matter who it is who tries to discredit it. It doesn't matter if they've got the title doctor before their name, and they've got a whole list of degrees after it. If they try to come against God's word, just write it out, no matter what it takes, because God's word is always true. Let's go back to our passage in 2 Kings, look at verse 4. In the seventh year, boy, this is cool. For six years, they don't see nothing happening, but in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of hundreds. Tells us a little bit who's involved here, the bodyguards and the escorts and brought them into the house of the Lord to him. And he made a covenant with them. And he took an oath from them in the house of the Lord, and he showed them the king's son. Wow, what a moment. So Jehoiada waited until the seventh year. And I was going to say he waited patiently, but I don't know that. I didn't see his life. And I'm thinking he'd probably be on edge every day thinking, man, is this the day? Is this the day? And then I'm assuming by the leading of the Lord that he knew it's the right time to take action. So he calls the military leaders and even those who were stationed close to the queen, it tells us the bodyguards and the escorts. These are guys with a lot of authority and very, very tight places here with leadership. And before he reveals anything to them, he makes a covenant with them 
and he has them take a sacred oath right there in the temple. And then he reveals to them the only living heir to the throne, the only living heir to the line of King David. This must have thrilled these guys to see that God's plan had not failed after all. Can you imagine six years of having a lid on that and now the pot's open and you can smell the stew and man, is it good, good stuff. So it's just been hidden for a while. And, and wow, how does that compare to where we are right now in God's timeline? You know, for many, it appears that, that God's plan had failed. He had chosen Israel. He was gonna use them to reveal himself and his Messiah to the world. But when the Messiah came and then Israel rejected him and had him put to death on the cross, it appeared that God's plan for Israel had failed. <laughs> but no, it may be gone into hiding for the past 2,000 years, but God's plan for Israel must be fulfilled, and it will be fulfilled. He gave us all the details of how it's going to come to be in his word. But sadly, many are not paying close enough attention, and they have given up on Israel. And some, even in the, the church, have turned their back on Israel, and it's so crazy to see that. But God's word in the book of Zechariah promises that Israel will accept their Messiah when he returns, and they will all be saved. So don't ever give up on God's word. Just write it out to the very end, and you will see that it is true. So look at our passage in verse 5. Then he commanded them, saying, so here's the, the priest giving orders to these leaders, these military guys. He says, this is what you shall do. One-third of you who come on duty on the Sabbath, got to be the Sabbath here, shall be keeping watch over the king's house. One-third shall be at the gate of Sur, and one-third at the gate behind the escorts. You shall keep the watch of the house, lest it be broken down. So his plan was to do this on the Sabbath. He chose that day, and the Lord chose that day, I'm sure, to reveal this living son of the king, and to anoint him as the true king of Judah. The Sabbath would be the, the largest number of folks would be here to witness it, so the word would get out quickly. Very amazing the way the Lord set all this up here. And you can see by this strategic plan that the troops, you know, he's not going to take any chances. The priest here has got them all over the place. Every place where there could be trouble spring up, he's carefully thought this out. He thought this would be the the best setup to protect the boy and to keep an idea, uh, an eye on all the possible situations that could come up too. So in verse 7, he's going on with these, these orders and directions for these plans. The two contingents of you who go off duty on the Sabbath shall keep the watch of the house of the Lord for the king, but you shall surround the king on all sides, every man with his weapons in his hand, and whoever comes within range let him be put to death, taking no chances. This is the last, this is the last thing here. This is the only guy, you know? So if anybody gets close, take him out. You are to be with the king as he goes out and as he comes in. So again, he's making careful plans to make sure this young boy is completely surrounded from all sides. And even if the boy goes anywhere, they are not to leave his side. Whether he goes out, whether he comes in, you stay right there. Okay, so verse nine. So the captains of the hundreds did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. Each of them took his men who were to be on duty on the Sabbath with those who were going off duty on the Sabbath. And he came to Jehoiada 
the priest. So it's so cool here to see the leaders submitting to the high priest. I believe they understood at this point that this guy is clearly serving the Lord and they've got no problem following. You know, they're like, yes, whatever the Lord is leading you, man, just let us know and we're going to do it. And that's something to think about in their time period. They have a temple to Baal in their own territory. And there doesn't appear to be many people who are openly following the Lord. I mean, that's not a good thing to do right then. Kind of like we're feeling that pressure here, you know. In their day, it was even worse because they got these temple, this temple of Baal just staring at them. And a lot of people are saying, you guys are crazy for trying to worship your God. You need to come over here and check this Baal out, okay? Not a bailout, you know, but check Baal out. Yeah, and yet these guys are anxious here to follow a true believer who's of the Lord. Man, wouldn't that be something, you know, to be among the troops there? So it's such a blessing to know the Lord always has a remnant. He always does. And if you're fully surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're part of that remnant today. Now, that doesn't mean that you just heard about Jesus Christ and you're part, you have this head knowledge that yeah, I know Jesus is the Savior, but it means that you have actually accepted Christ and you are following him. Then you can be confident that you're part of the remnant. I talked to some of you before and mentioned this. I might have mentioned it to everybody, but there was a guy I listened to a while back who was talking about following Christ. And he said, you know, there, there are people that are dating Christ. And we, when we first heard about Jesus, we were kind of in that group. We were dating him. But the day came where we were called to make a commitment to Christ, and we were married to him. You know, I mean, then spiritually speaking, it's kind of an illustration just to think this one through. But you think about the disciples, you know, when they first met Jesus, but then the day came where Jesus gave them that, that statement, follow me. And they made a decision to be committed. But this, this pastor that was talking, I was listening to, you know, he was saying that there are a lot of people in, in the body of Christ, in the church, I should say, that are, are dating Christ. They know who he is. They've said, I, they want the fire insurance, but they've never committed to him. They've never crossed the line from dating to marriage. They never made a serious commitment. So if you have made a commitment to Christ, you're part of the remnant. That's who you are. Let's go on to our passage here, verse 10. The priest gave the captains of the hundreds of the spears and the shields, which had belonged to King, belonged to King David, uh, that they were in the temple of the ward. Amazing the way the Lord set this up too. All that stuff happened to be right there. So the priest, he takes these and he gives them to the, the soldiers in charge here. Now there's a significance to the Lord telling us, I think about the priest handing these weapons out that were known to be King David's. When the people saw the captains with these weapons, that would have let the people know that this event has the backing of the priest and the Lord. It's not a rebellion taking place. This thing's of the Lord. And you know, it's a lot easier to say amen if we're pretty sure that it's got God's blessing is on it, right? So this would be a, a sign to them that, hey, this is going the right way. So verse 11, then the escort stood, every man with his weapons in his hand, all around the king, from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple, by the altar in the house. That had to be a sight to see. You've got all these troops with weapons drawn, all protecting this young boy. And at this moment, the people don't know who this apparent celebrity is. Wow, what a picture. Verse 12, and he brought out the king's son. So now he brings him out and he put the crown on him and he gave, the te- gave him the testimony. And that, that's the law. They made him king and they anointed him 
And they clapped their hands and they said, long live the king. Notice how important the ceremony was. They gave him the crown. That would be the symbol of his authority to rule. But they also gave him the law of Moses. That was the testimony it refers to here. And what that meant was, we're expecting you to rule according to the law of Moses. That's a great expectation for the people of God. It doesn't get any better, right, than that. But notice what they did next. They made him king and they anointed him. Now, the anointing there, the oil they used to pour on him to anoint him as king, remember, that's a picture of the Holy Spirit. We talked about that a number of times before. He's going to need the Spirit to empower him to do the job that God was calling him to do. And you and I can be sure that when the Lord calls us to do a job, it is absolutely necessary that we submit to the Holy Spirit to do the work. We dare not try to do it on our own power. The risen Lord Jesus, he warned the disciples to wait for the empowering of the Spirit before they started their ministry that would eventually reach the ends of the earth. That's what he told them. So God's work must be done with God's power. We'd be foolish to attempt it without him. You know, Jesus said, what can we do without him? He said, we can do nothing without him. So if you want to do nothing, there's the way to do it. But if you want to see something done for the Lord, You've got to do it with Jesus. You've got to do it with the Spirit. You've got to do it in his power. And notice here what happened after they did this. These folks, they got excited, and there was rejoicing that was going on when he was anointed the king. The, the people spontaneously clapped their hands, and they started to shout, long live the king, you know. And these were people, you think about where they're coming from, they'd probably given in to the idea that we're going to be under the rule of this wicked lady for the rest of our days. No wonder they got so excited when they saw that the Lord had come through for them after all, you know? And this makes you look forward to the celebration when Jesus comes back as king. We're told at first, you know, that there's going to be tears when the nation of Israel realizes they were wrong in rejecting their Messiah when he came the first time. But I think when it sinks in and they actually get to the point of getting past the sorrow and the tears turn to tears of joy, Man, there's going to be a celebration. Wow. You know, I think it's going to be unbelievable. Uh, a joyous celebration there. It's something I can't wait to see. You know, we, we can't wait, but when it, when until it comes, we've got to keep our nose to the plow and keep sharing the good news. So I encourage you again, take those tracks downstairs and just put them out everywhere you go, okay? Verse 13 goes on. Now, when Athalia heard of the noise of the escorts of the people, <laughs> she heard that ruckus going on, she came to the people in the temple of the Lord. So everybody, you know, even the escorts are shouting here, long live the king. And she can't believe her ears. For her, this was just another normal day. I get to do my wicked, selfish thing. And what's this? What's going on here? You know, she must have been thinking, there can't be a king. I know that's what I'm hearing, but there can't be because I killed all the, all the grandsons. There are no heirs, you know. So you talk about a backwards nightmare that this lady is in right now. Verse 14, when she looked, there was the king standing by a pillar according to custom. I think it'd be hilarious if he looked just like his dad. She's like, oh, no. You know, and the leaders and the trumpeters were by the king. All the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. So Athalia, she jumped in the celebration. No, she didn't. She tore her clothes and she cried out, treason, treason. 
when we talk about an oxymoron here, she's the one who did that, right? So in her worst nightmare now, she's seeing what appears to be the real king standing in the right place, and all the people are rejoicing over him. And he even has a band of trumpets announcing his new reign. So realizing at this point that she's in real trouble, <laughs> she tries to turn things around her way. She rips her clothes to show uh, grief. And then she starts screaming, treason, you know. But by this time, her cries and accusations are falling on deaf ears. That has to be such a sinking feeling, you know, when you think you're in charge and all of a sudden, here's someone that you would never expect to win. And yet, here they are ready to give their victory speech. And all you can think to do is shout out accusations. He didn't know that story was in the Bible, huh? They try to say the Bible isn't relevant. <laughs> we saw some of this stuff. Huh? Verse 15, And Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of the hundreds, the officials of the army, and he said to them, Take her outside under guard, don't let her get away, and slay with the sword whoever follows her. And notice this, for the priest had said, do not let her be killed in the house of the Lord. So they seized her, and she went by way of the horse's entrance into the king's house, and there she was killed. Kind of like they took her in the garage where the horses come in here. So the order was given that she must die and any of her followers too. They were not to allow her evil influence to be spread through her followers anymore. So if anybody was bold enough to join themselves with her at this point, then they were going to share in her fate. So from the way it's stated, it appears that the priest had already given directions, you know, that she will not be killed in the temple. You know, it said, don't, don't do this. So apparently he told them ahead of time. It's possibly felt, you know, the emotions of some of the soldiers may have gotten out of hand and maybe they might react prematurely and shed blood, evil blood, guilty blood in the temple, and that would not have been a good thing. So he, he prepares them ahead of time. Hey, when it comes time, you guys take her out. Don't, don't do that here. So she was properly executed according to the law. Remember, the law of Moses declared that anyone who worships another god or who leads others to worship any other god, they were to be put to death. So this was a capital crime, capital punishment for this. So they were not acting in rebellion by doing this. Actually, they were in line with the law. So we're going to stop here for today, but, but don't forget this lesson, that God's plan is always going to work, and no evil can stop the Lord. It's impossible. I know the devil shouts and may talk a good game, but at the end, he's put away. He's done with. So, so don't fall for that stuff. Somebody said, the Lord doesn't even need a great force to overcome evil. He can even use a seven-year-old boy to do so. That's our great God. Isn't that amazing? Let's pray. Father, you are so tremendously good to us, and you're so amazing in the way you set things up and the way you make promises that are sure to be kept. And Lord, I know there are times when we are slow of heart to believe, and we look at the circumstances, and we say, Lord, I don't see how this is ever going to work. We might have said that this very week, Lord. But, Lord, you encourage us today that your plan never fails. And, Lord, we love to see it when you, you start to show the hidden things that you have been holding back just to, for the right moment and the right time to let us see your great love, 
your great, your great plans that are so perfect. And we get to experience seeing how they work out. So thank you for revealing this to us in your word. Thank you for encouraging us in our heart. And Lord, we want to give you back all the, the praise, honor, and glory for that in the name of Jesus. Amen.